Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis once again. We are studying a very important text on the Word of God as we go through the book of Genesis. I want to read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned. God has begun to question them concerning what they have done. And Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. And nobody wants to take responsibility. But the Lord comes and he intervenes as he sees this situation, and he deals with the serpent first of all. So we read in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Before we seek to open up these words, let us pray for God's help once again. Almighty Conqueror, Lord Jesus, you to whom we have just sung and of whom we have just sung, we do bless you that you are the long-promised one who has come to deliver man who has fallen into sin. And we do bless you that through your death and resurrection you won the greatest victory ever, And we bless you that even now we can pray in your name, we can labor in your name, and we can know that that which the adversary sought to do in ruining the whole world, you have power and grace to turn around. We look to you, O Lord Jesus, that you would even do that in the hearts of some that are sitting here today, strangers to your grace. Touch their hearts, we pray, with your omnipotence and your grace. Touch all of our hearts, we do pray, that we might follow you and love you and be faithful unto you. Give us understanding even now of your holy word. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. One of the things that is a little strange about me that you might find out if you got to know me a little better is that I enjoy looking at maps. Some people might think that's a very strange thing to do, to look at maps, especially when you have GPS nowadays. You don't need a map to get around. Well, I like to see the arrangement of things and what's north and south and what's the relationship. And one of the things that has been a blessing to me and my computer is the, I don't know if it's Google or whoever it is, they put on a new picture every day or two. And I always want to know where that picture was taken. So I get on Google and I find out where it was and I first thing I click on is the map thing to show me where it is that this picture was. Perhaps some of you have seen some of the old maps that they used to draw and make North America look very strange compared to what we know of it as in terms of its shape. And part of this has to do with the fact that these were explorers that could only see little bits and pieces of the land that they'd come to. They couldn't see the whole picture 
We have satellite images now that correct our map making in many ways, I'm sure. I'm sure there are other things that also help those that make the maps that we enjoy at this time. What we have here in the verses that I just read is a map. It's a map of history. It tells us what is going to happen for the next thousands of years. It is, a, as it were, a short summary in history form of what is going to take place. And in one short statement here, we have the underlying theme and the meaning of history. And whatever, therefore, we would say about mankind, whatever we would say about the nations, whatever we would say about political things up and down, whatever we would say with respect to the great movements of history or the little tiny things that take place under the microscope, as we examine all those things that take place throughout the centuries, if we do not have this map, we will be like those primitive map makers, having a very garbled view of what, this, what it all means. We need this guide, as it were, to help us in our thinking and make sense of the human experience, whether it be the past or whether it be the present or whether it be the future. And I invite you, therefore, with great interest, I trust, to see something of the map that is laid before us in this passage. Well, this is the second installment of what's going to be three sermons that we have entitled The First Curse and the First Promise, uh, sermons based upon these two verses that we have just read. And as we noted in our first sermon on these verses, the reason for this title is that the first promise was hidden in the first curse. For our first parents, it must have been a ray of sunlight shining into the darkness of their depressed souls as they have just fallen into sin. For many years, it was the lone star of believing hearts. They now understood, having heard these things, that Satan, who had pretended to be their friend, was now their worst enemy. But now they could see that he was also God's enemy and that God was determined to overthrow both them uh, both, 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 of their, both of their enemies, both the enemies of God and the enemy of, these, of Adam and Eve, his first couple that he made. And so flushed with excitement and victory and having won this victory, Satan was filled with fiendish glee over what he had just accomplished. But God steps right in and he takes up personally the quarrel with the devil. He tells the dragon that his great quarrel is not with the Adam and Eve, His great quarrel was with him. And he makes it clear that he is going to deal with Satan himself. And in his words to the serpent, therefore, there are five significant realities. We looked at the first two in our last sermon, which are set out in your outlines there in the bulletins. First of all, we notice that we have in this passage the serpent's irreversible condemnation. God spoke to the snake because it was a devil-possessed snake. And in the first half of the verse, verse 14, God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And in this verse, God's curse, it rests upon the reptile that Satan had used to deceive Eve. And in the next verse, we read that the curse fell upon the one that controlled the reptile, Satan himself. And the idea that's conveyed by the particular Hebrew word translated cursed 
in Genesis 3.14 is the idea of banishment. There's different words for curses, but this particular one has the idea of banishment from blessing. And in this case, of course, the blessings of the garden. Every creature would be banished now because of sin from the fertility and the harmony of the garden. But at verse 14, we read that the serpent was to be cursed and banished even worse than all the other creatures. His exile from all the blessings of God was permanent. It was going to be irreversible. It was eternal. These words, they point to Satan's eternal banishment from heaven. Here we have, therefore, the serpent's irreversible condemnation. And then we have, secondly, the serpent's conspicuous degradation. In the last half of the verse, God says, On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And both of these curses, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust, these are symbols of humiliation and defeat. The first aspect of this degradation is found in those words, on your belly you shall go. Now perhaps we're to infer that the serpent once had legs and looked differently. We don't know exactly what he looked like before this curse came. But we do know now that whatever the case was, he is sentenced to having to slither on his belly now for the rest of its, of its days. But it might be that God is primarily intending that we take this language symbolically. Either way, whether having the mode of locomotion changed for the, for the snake or the reptile, whatever it was before, whatever the case is, its slithering on the ground is a, de a degrading feature. And this mode of movement, it seems to be a picture of the way that Satan moves about. He moves about not with the dignity of holiness, but with the groveling of a creature that has to slither around and be subtle as to be seen. And his descendants likewise will resort to the same posture. So when you're tempted to sin, this is a thing to remember. Remember the nature of sin is like its first instigator. It's groveling in nature. And once you give in to evil, you will go down and down until you're just like this evil one to whom the curse was assigned on your belly. You shall go. And the second manifestation of the serpent's conspicuous degradation, it's set forth at the end of the verse. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, if a creature is slithering around in the dust, it's going to end up eating a lot of dust doesn't mean that snakes like dust. It just means that that's where they're going to be. And again, it's plain that these words are to be understood primarily symbolically. In several places in the Bible, the image of eating dust is used to express humiliation. In Micah 7.17, for instance, we read concerning the enemies of the Lord, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. It's an image that depicts the condition of somebody or some people that have been utterly defeated and humiliated. And so in all of our struggles against sin, all of our struggles against the instigator of sin, it's good for us to remember that our foe has been conquered by our great champion, the Lord Jesus. And with respect to the great scheme of Satan, he has been utterly subjugated under the foot of Emmanuel. And when he saw Jesus on the cross, he thought he had finally accomplished his dastardly purpose. But when he heard the triumphant cry, it's finished, he knew to his own desperate horror 
that the very thing that he had done to Jesus had secured a kingdom for him and an opportunity to redeem millions. And worse yet, remembering the curse of Genesis 3, he knew that he was doomed forever. What a mouthful of dust he ate on that day. And so when you're tempted to sin, remember these words. If you ever experience pleasure in sin, it is the most degrading and the most despicable kind of pleasure. It is like slithering around in the dust and eating dust. Dust is your food. There's nothing satisfying in the pleasures of rebellion. And as long as you live in sin, you will be compelled to eat at Satan's table. Those who eat at Satan's table, they eat dust. Well, this brings us to our third main heading, and this is going to be the subject of our sermon this morning, the serpent's implacable opposition. And you will see in your outlines that there are three headings underneath this third main heading. As we read of this implacable opposition, we read of it in the first half of verse 15, first of all, where we read, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, there's nothing obscure about the meaning of this word enmity. It obviously means that one person is the enemy of the other. In Hebrew, it means just the same thing it means in English. There's nothing complicated about it. And the noun form occurs five times in the Old Testament, and in each one of these cases, it signifies hostile intent, such hostility even that it leads to murder often. And here God announces a new order. In a very real sense, Satan, you see, before this, had entered into a covenant with Adam and Eve. They became his friends, and he became their friends, so to speak. They had this agreement but that they would, as it were, rebel together against God. And so the first thing that had to take place is that God had to break up this covenant. And here he announces a new order. He announces the fact that this covenant's over. This relationship is over. And in his marvelous grace, he declares that from this point on, there is going to be extreme hostility and animosity between Satan and the first pair. And this animosity will be so great that there will be a life and death struggle between the two throughout the centuries to follow. Now the first thing that verse 15 tells us, and this is our first point for this sermon is that there will be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman and between, this, between his seed and her seed. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This was a manifestation of divine grace. Up until now, you see, the woman and the serpent were friends. They had conversed together. Eve had taken the, the suggestions of the serpent. And she had acted upon those suggestions. And at the time of the temptation, she thought that that serpent was her friend, giving her better advice even than God had given her. She was thinking he was so much his friend that she took his advice more than God's advice and God's command. And in fact, she's willing to believe bad things about the Creator, all because this wicked, wily serpent had insinuated evil things concerning God. But now, this friendship had begun to show some signs of cracking. 
After Adam had blamed his wife, God turned to Eve and asked her, Why have you done this? In other words, like we say to our children, What in the world is going on here in this room? We say, What have you done? And she says, Well, the serpent beguiled me in an eight. And so this friendship has broken already. The friendship of sinners, it never lasts for long. And here we see that already the one is blaming the other. So the Lord graciously steps in and he takes advantage of this quarrel. And he says, I'm going to take this disagreement a lot further. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. You see, Satan had counted on this first couple and their descendants being his confederates in evil. And God says, therefore, I'm going to break this covenant with hell. I will raise up a seed that will war against Satan and against his seed. And in this verse, great significance is attached to the word seeds. And there are two different seeds that are mentioned in our text. Satan's seed and the seed of the woman. And we might have supposed that the curse you see would result in having no offspring. Because you remember in Genesis chapter 1 as we studied it, that God's blessing again and again involved being fruitful and multiplying. But here in Genesis 3.15, the curse does not include it being unproductive, having no offspring. Both the serpent and the woman are to have offspring or seed. Now, in the vast majority of cases where the Hebrew word translated seed, it refers to an individual person, when this is the case, it refers to an immediate offspring. It refers to a man and a woman and their immediate son or immediate daughter. And we read, for instance, just look over, maybe across the page, chapter 4 and verse 25, we have an early example of this. We read, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God had appointed, and notice these words, another seed for me, she says, instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. It's another seed, another individual person that God had given to her. And after Cain had murdered Abel, we have the record of Cain and his descendants. And in this verse, we read, therefore, that God has appointed this new seed. You see, there was the evil seed, Cain, but then the godly seed, Abel, was murdered, and God gave Eve a new seed. And he is called Seth. And then in chapter 15, in verse 3, Abraham, at that point, Abram, he laments that he is without seed. And in chapter 21, in verse 13, we read that Ishmael is his seed to begin with. And in 2 Samuel 7, 12, just to give you another example, Solomon is said to be David's seed. And many other such examples could be given from the Old Testament where an individual son is mentioned as the seed of a certain, of a certain parent. But in a number of passages, the Hebrew word zerah, or seed, is a collective word. It, dis- it refers to a distant offspring or group of descendants. And even though most modern translations use the plural for these references, descendants, plural, the Hebrew itself is not in the plural. It's singular. It's a collective word. And the use of a singular for a large collective group is what we call a collective word. And so the translation posterity is like that. Posterity is in the singular, 
but it's speaking about a large group of people that are descendants. Offspring is also a word that is used in that way. And this collect, uh, captures the collective sense of this word Zerah more accurately. And no doubt this is why the translators of the English Standard Version uses, they use the collective word offspring instead of the more familiar word to some of us King James readers, the word seed. And the question is raised as to whether the word Zerah in, in, in this verse can be understood flexibly. Can it also be referring to a collective group, but also a representative of that collective group? And scholars have been hard-pressed to find an example outside of this verse where the word is used in that kind of a flexible way, both to speak of a group and also of its representative. But this leads us to ask how we should translate then the Hebrew pronoun later on in the verse. He or it, or they. Notice how we read the end of the verse. Let's just read verse 15 all the way through with the Lord. Okay, I'm on the wrong page here. Okay. Uh, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then it stops talking about seed, and it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Is this the right translation? Should it be he or should it be it? There's even some, I think even the King James put it in one of those places. I can't remember for sure. Or should it be they? In all three of these uh, other versions, though, that are used among us, the New King James, the New, New American, the ESV, those are most commonly in your laps, I think. In all three of those translations, thankfully, the word he is used. And for instance, we read in the New King James and the ESV, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there's an ancient pedigree for this translation. And I hope you just hang with me for a moment here. This is very important. Sounds technical, but it's very important for understanding this text. And the ancient text, ancient pedigree comes from back in 250 B.C., when Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And they gave the world, as a result, what we call the Septuagint translation. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it's interesting that they translated the pronoun we have here with a masculine Greek pronoun rather than either its feminine or its neuter form. So in the Greek, if we translate the Greek into English, it translates this way. He shall bruise your head. Not she shall bruise your head. Not it shall bruise your head. So hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, Jewish scholars understood that there's a messianic reference here. This is amazing. A single male individual, he's going to be the seed of the woman par excellence. He's going to rise and he's going to be the one that's going to bruise the serpent's head. And these Jewish scholars, 250 years before Jesus came on the scene, they couldn't possibly have any kind of Christian presuppositions. And yet they understood that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy about the seed of the woman is going to be a future man, a future individual that's going to deal the death blow to the serpent. This translation and this interpretation it's confirmed by the fact that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul argues on the basis of the word seed in the singular 
and God's promise to Abraham. And he argues that the word seed refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say, here I'm still quoting Paul's words, he does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So the promise of two seeds in Genesis 3, it has both a collective sense, two posterities, a line of evil people and a line of the godly, two, two seeds, two posterities, but it also has an individual sense here, this promise. It refers to a coming individual that will ultimately be the seed, that will bruise Satan. And with reference to the two collective posterities, it's also important that we see that Genesis 3.15, it's not talking about two physical posterities. It's not just all the people that are born physically to such and such. Satan is a fallen angel, and spiritual beings don't have children. It's impossible. They're, they're not given in marriage, Jesus says. They don't have the ability for physical reproduction. And so it's not physical reproduction that's being spoken about here. It's referring to two spiritual camps, two spiritual peoples that will be around in all the ages from this point on. Now, as we read on in Genesis, we immediately counter these two posterities. There's a godly posterity or descendants from the woman and an ungodly one from Satan. The godly Abel, he offered a better sacrifice than the ungodly king. And no doubt Satan considered pious Abel, you see, to be maybe the seed that was promised. And so what does he do? He puts it in the heart of Cain to Cain to kill his brother. Satan wants to stamp out that seed right away, you see. So he tempts him to kill him. And intent on squelching the threat, Right away, this is what he does. In 1 John 3.12, we're given this interpretation, that Cain, who was of the wicked one, murdered Abel. He was of the ungodly seed. He was of the wicked one. He was of that seed. And what was the result? He murdered Abel. And immediately after this incident, we read in Genesis 4.26, that Eve bore another son named Seth, who in turn bore a son named Enosh. And here the scriptures teach us that, quote, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was a people collectively now that now began to follow the Lord, believe in the Lord, worship the Lord, a godly seed. So right away, we have the record of two spiritual posterities, one of Satan and the other of the woman. And these two spiritual posterities are also prominent in New Testament times. While Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, John 8.44, he taught the disciples, on the other hand, to pray, our father who art in heaven, who is in heaven. One has the father of the heavenly father, one has the father of the devil. Two different posterities. And it's important that we recognize that everybody born into this world, Jesus accepted, comes into this world as the posterity of the serpent. This is how we came into the world. None of us were born as the seed of the woman. We were all born as the seed of the serpent to begin with. And this is why Satan is called the ruler of this world, John 12 to 31. His sway is worldwide. 
All the millions of our race, without exception, were born as the slaves of the devil. All of us entered this life with chains around our hands, as it were. All of us entered this life with his throne erected in our hearts. And by nature, we do the lusts of the devil. By nature, he is our father. He sets up the idols of fame and pleasure and money and sexual promiscuity, and we fall down and we worship. He decks his religion with an attractive show. And his ministers, they hold out to their hearers the cup of error, and multitudes gladly recite his creed. Do you wonder, dear people, this is how we need to use this text to understand what's going on. Do you wonder why so many people, so many millions in our country can embrace such nonsense as the idea that men can have babies? How could it be? How could it be that so many people, they have this idea that we could just choose whether we want to be male or female? Do you wonder how it is that so many millions, they can see pictures of the unborn. They can see, as it were, electronic pictures even of the movement of the child and other pictures, and yet still treat them as just fetal tissue that could just be discarded at will. Do you wonder why so many things that we that are so obviously contrary to reality, can be defended with such devotion and with such fury? And do you wonder why there's such hatred between this posterity and the seed of the woman? This passage tells us why this is so. Genesis 3.15 tells us that there's going to be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and her seed. From the very beginning... We see that this enmity, it's not just like the rivalry between two ball clubs. This enmity is a murderous enmity. Right away, Cain murders Abel, and down through the ages it's been so. Satan's temptations in the garden and his activities ever since, these weren't just a few dirty tricks. His enmity doesn't stop with just a little deception and lying. It has a murderous intent. And this is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of the father, your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You're just like him. You want to kill me. You're of his seed. Those words are in John 8, 44. And throughout the Old Testament, we have the record of those who seek to make war against the people of God. And the war that takes place is absolutely brutal. It's, all, it's sometimes almost like R-rated reading when you read the Old Testament, what happened. It involves heads being hacked off, bodies being chopped to pieces. Hebrews eleven thirty-five to 38 tells us what the enemies of God did to the seed of the woman. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This hostility, it's murderous in its nature. And it also has an emotional component to it. God hates sin. That's an emotion. 
And Satan hates holiness. And this emotional component is intrinsically linked to the ideological nature of the enmity. The disagreement, it isn't just over one issue or even just three or four issues. It's a totality of the issues. It's a conflict of two utterly opposite worldviews. There's a real antithesis between the thinking of one group as opposed to the other. And this is why Paul can say, for example, that the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot be. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8. This is why we read in Proverbs 29, 27, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. This is why righteous people, it's hard for us to tolerate the wickedness that's around us. And it's hard, you see, for the wicked to tolerate us. There's an animosity. There's two totally different ways of thinking about everything. And this is why those that flaunt God's rules for marital purity, they get so angry when others challenge their right to kill the fruit of this promiscuity. This is why they burn down pro-life centers. This is why there's such hatred of those that maintain law and order. This is why gender-affirming zealots, they feel it's a matter of righteousness to keep parents in the dark regarding children that are toying with the idea of transitioning. This is why... The woke crowd is so dead set against free speech if it's opposed to their views. They want to just squelch it. It doesn't have a right for expression in our society. And you and I need to recognize that all of this is not just a matter of winning elections. And not just, it's not just a matter of wielding political power. We can get the right people that we think in, and it's not going to really change the issue. The hostility is deeper than just politics. It's so deep that there's only one solution, the transformation of the hearts of those that are the seed of the serpent into those that become the seed of the woman. That's the only solution. The book of Revelation depicts the age-long war between these two seeds. In Revelation 11 and verse 7, we read of the two witnesses Symbolic of the martyrs throughout the ages. The Greek word for witness is marturion, which means martyr. And Revelation 11 and verse 7 says, When they finished their testimony, their witness bearing, often by means of martyrdom, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And then in Revelation 12 and verse 9, we read of the dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. And we read of his being cast down to the earth. And in that passage in Revelation chapter 12, we read in verses 13 and following about the, the dragon and his opposition to the seed. We read, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. 
And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God. They have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then we move on into chapter 13 of Revelation, verse 7. We read of the beast from the sea. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And in Revelation 19, we read of the way in which the seed of the woman, especially the one that's going to be the seed of the woman par excellence, this one whose eyes are like the flame of fire, this one on whose head are many crowns, this one in whose name is the word of God, out of whose mouth goes a sharp sword, who will rule with a rod of iron. He will subjugate these people. He will tread them under his feet with the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. teaches us that there's never going to be a truce. It's only going to end by subjugation and the new heavens and the new earth. And individually with the changing of hearts one by one by the grace of God. And just by way of an aside, I think it's interesting. I've quoted a whole string of verses from Revelation. You can't understand the book of Genesis without reading the book of Revelation. And you can't understand the book of Revelation without knowing the book of Genesis. They interpret one another. And yet they were written thousands of years apart. How did that happen? Just a little aside here. Shows us the unity of scripture. How God inspired this word. And over thousands of years it's all connected. Well, Coming back to our main subject. The first thing that we see then. Regarding the serpent's implacable opposition. Is that there is going to be an implacable enmity. Between the serpent and the woman. Between his seed and her seed. And the second aspect of this implacable opposition, and it's featured in our text, is that this enmity is kept up by God himself. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it is God who says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now prior to that moment, a terrible alliance had been made between Satan and the woman. And what is God's response to that terrible alliance that had taken place? He could have said, well, if you want to go over to the dark side, you just go ahead. That's what God could have said. Let's see how that works out for you. He could have just said, you made your bed with a serpent, let's see what happens. I'm out of here. You just, you just find out what a friend he's going to be. I'm gone. That's not what God did. Blessed be God, he did not allow this alliance to go on. He stepped in and he broke it up. He engineered an enmity between the woman and the one that would destroy her forever. It is God, you see, that stepped in and set this new order in motion. God is in control. God enters time and space in this world and he manages all of history with a view to this glorious purpose, his glorious redemptive purpose. And here in the seed form are two kingdoms that are being formed. And here we have the beginning of the church. Here's the foreshadowing, as it were, of Christ's declaration. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. God is setting up two families. God is setting up two kingdoms. And the two are never going to get along. A perpetual enmity is set up 
between two opposing camps that will always be at odds with one another. For all eternity, this enmity will exist. Now you and I, we long for that day when all the political parties would get along. We'd love to have what H.W. Bush called a kinder, gentler nation. We would long for that. I don't fault him for wanting to, 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 to engender that in our, in our nation. We long that there be no more nasty treats, tweets, no more nasty things that take place as we've witnessed it on C-SPAN, the debates that take place. It's hardly tolerable to look at as we look at what's, what takes place in, in Washington. We want all the pundits to stop being so nasty to each other. But ain't going to happen, my folks, my friends. Ain't going to happen. During this present evil age, the enmity will continue. Peace is not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Peace is not going to happen until he banishes the, earth, the, the serpent and, and his seed altogether from this world and restores this world to its original Edenic state. It's not going to happen until then. And I want to just ask, does this discourage you that this is the case? But if you're part of the seed of the woman, this shouldn't discourage you. If there's enmity between you and the seed of the serpent, bless God. This is an act of distinguishing grace. I hope this enmity between you and the serpent exists. I hope that you're not on his side. Are you part of the seed of the woman, I want to ask? Is there a deep-seated hatred in your heart for everything that's false and evil? And if so, this text, it's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful blessing. And even though you might stumble and fall back into sin, God is assured that he's put a wedge between you and the devil. And you're going to remain his seed forever, not the devil's seed. Recently, Satan may have duped you. You may have strayed away from God, but if through Christ you've become part of this new spiritual progeny, you will never, never, ever go back to the devil's side. You are permanently an enemy of the devil. And he's permanently your enemy. Your sovereign Lord has inserted this wedge. He's been the one that's put this enmity there. And on the other hand, if you're part of Christ's seed, and you've been toying with the pleasures of sin, knowing that, know this, my friend. You will never be able to be the friend of God and the friend of the world at the same time. You can't be the friend of both seeds, both leaders of the seeds. There could be no terms of compromise in this war. There can be no reconciliation, you see, of these two spiritual governments. God's going to see it's never going to happen. Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, remember, he said to King Jehoshaphat, the godly king of Judah, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And in his folly, Jehoshaphat said to wicked Ahab, I am as you are. My people are your people. And my horses are your horses. You can read of it in 1 Kings 22. But God saw to it that this alliance wouldn't stand. And wicked king Ahab died in battle. God broke that up, you see. He didn't allow Jehoshaphat to go and actually fulfill this compromise. God makes sure that these two seeds will endure forever. He put the breach there, and it won't be taken away. As we continue to think about the serpent's implacable opposition, there's just one more feature, a third feature of this opposition that I need to mention. At length, God will raise up a champion. 
the conflict is going to reach its climax in a battle between two individuals. Eventually there will emerge an individual who is the seed of the woman in a very special sense who will do battle with the serpent. And notice that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there's a threefold progression. First of all, this would be helpful if we could put it on a chart, but first of all we read of the enmity of God that he's going to put between the serpent and the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, two persons. And then secondly, this enmity is between the two seeds of these two leaders, the serpent seed and the woman seed. But then interestingly, in the third place, this enmity is going to be between two persons. The serpent, addressed with the, by the word you, God is bringing the curse upon Satan, and an unnamed he. God says to Satan, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A champion is going to come. A leader is going to come. In this final clause, the serpent is not mentioned first, but rather the one referred to as the he, that is Jesus. It's crystal clear that the identity of this promised descendant, this he, is the Messiah. And this is confirmed by the genealogies, such as we read in Luke 3, in which the line of Jesus is traced back to Adam and Eve. And Jesus is described as being in direct lineage, therefore, of the woman. He's the seed of the woman. Some mysterious personages to arise when the end will crush the serpent. And the end, the battle is going to be not just a face-off, you see, between two armies. But it's going to be two persons. The final battle ultimately is going to be between the, the serpent and the one that's going to come from the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head, that is Satan's head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his, that is Messiah's heel. And again, this is why Paul speaks of a singular seed in Galatians 3.16. Referring to Abraham's seed, Paul writes, He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. And so even though the serpent is strong, there's going to come one that's stronger. Though Satan is mighty, there's going to come one that's almighty. And even though the serpent is more subtle than all the beasts of the field, there's one that's coming who is all wisdom, who can never be outwitted. And even though the devil is a captator, captivator, he will be taken captive. And even though he forges chains by which he might enslave sinners, he will be chained. And even though he's now a conqueror, he will be conquered. The seed of the woman is to produce a champion to oppose the dragon. That champion, that conqueror, that deliverer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Micah saw the day when this one would be born. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet shall out of you shall come forth to me, one that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And immediately after this remarkable prophecy, the prophet refers to one going in labor, in giving birth to this mighty deliverer. And from this genealogy, of, and the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, we learn that he is to be of the seed of the woman, not of the seed of a man. He's called the seed of a woman because he's going to be born of the virgin, the virgin Mary. And therefore he was sent to, made of a woman, Galatians 4 and verse 4. 
And his conception was the result, you see, of the work of the Holy Spirit and not of a human father. He is the God-man. He is God in order that with his omnipotence he might conquer Satan. He is man that he might represent us in that great and final battle. And from the beginning of his days on earth, the seed of the woman, our Savior, was opposed by the serpent. Right from the start, the old serpent, the devil, entered into the heart of Herod, you remember. He hoped to destroy the newborn king. He, he, he slew all the male children from two years old and under in Bethlehem and its vicinity. But Jesus' father kept the serpent from destroying Jesus. Thirty years later, as soon as Christ was set forth publicly as the Son of God in the waters of the Jordan, Satan met him foot to foot in the wilderness. And you know the story of the temptations, how the seed of the woman and the old serpent, they fought it out to the bitter end. Forty days and forty nights, you see, he was there being tempted of the devil. Every outward advantage was given to his adversary. And the wicked one drew from his quiver his oft-tried and most successful shafts. And he mustered all of his skill, skill that had been honed now for thousands of years. And his empire depended upon this issue. And the most that hell could, be, could ever do was done. But it was all in vain. Every arrow that he shot, it was successfully warded off by the word of God. And at last the devil quit the field, baffled and beaten hoping for a better opportunity down the road. And after this, the Lord Jesus began to set up a kingdom, calling disciples to himself. And more and more, he began to carry the battle into enemy territory. Time after time, he bound the strong man. Legions of devils flew before him. They cried out, are you to come to, to torment us before the time? And he even made his disciples mighty against the evil one. For in his name, they too cast out devils. So you lovers of Jesus, this is your champion. We're going to hear more about it in our next sermon as we go into further details concerning what Jesus did to accomplish this great task. But I want to close by asking, are you part of the seed of the woman? Are you still part of the seed of the serpent? Which seat are you? Which which side are you on? There's no neutral ground, my friend. You have you are in one or the other. Every person's in one or the other. And it might seem that if you're the seed of of the serpent, you're on the winning side. There, there's so many more people it seems that are on that side. It's going to win out, no doubt, in the end. It seems. But throughout the Old Testament, on hundreds of occasions, it's the few that conquer the many. And don't count on it, therefore, that just because God's seed is fewer in number, at least it's in appearance, that, 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 that they're going to lose out. Or you might be held back, you see, by your, your sins. You don't want to leave this company. You don't want to leave the lifestyle that, that Satan offers you, that the world offers you. And I want to just tell you, my friend, if, if you're in that camp, as long as the adversary makes, the, makes sin sweet to you, as long as he dupes you in this way and makes it seem like it's the, way to, the best choice, you're going to be his captive. And you'll go on being his captive. 
And nothing in heaven or earth can do you any good, my friend, if this is the case, unless you begin to have a bitter taste of sin and a bitter taste for what you've done and a bitter taste for being in this company and where it's headed. Nothing's going to ever change you unless you repent of your sin and give it up. And therefore consider its ruination of millions. And just as it ruined the Garden of Eden, and just as the sweet taste of forbidden fruits became, became very quickly very bitter for Adam and Eve, it needs to be bitter to you. I, I, I beg of you, turn from what's going to destroy you forever. After thousands of years, if you are destroyed, let me remind you, you will not be any closer to paying for your sins, but it will be forever and forever. And you'll be constantly in the company of hideous, murderous, hateful beings forever and ever. Oh, I, I, I beg of you to leave that side. Don't stay in that camp. And believers, this is a call to vigilance. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 tell us, Be sober and vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Remember this, that when you give in to his temptations, you're taking his side again against Christ. It's a losing proposition. Don't do it. Evil believers, don't slip into this. And finally, by faith, go to the Lord Jesus for crushing the serpent in you. He who so willingly was bruised by Satan on the cross, he will just as willingly help you and strengthen you in your struggle against sin. Go to the Lord Jesus as the champion, as the one that will help you in this great struggle. As you walk into a place that you know is more tempting than else, as you turn on your computer, as you do whatever it is that might be a difficult experience for you, a time pray. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Help me, Lord Jesus. You be my champion now. I'm too weak. I need your help. Please, Lord, save me. Please deliver me. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you. We bless you that you have indeed fulfilled the promise that you made at the very beginning of history. You have raised up the seed par excellence, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We bless you for our champion. We bless you for our Savior. And we long, O oh Lord, to see days in which multitudes are brought into his kingdom. We long to see righteousness prevail more and more. And yet we know, O oh Lord, that there will be this animosity until the end. And therefore give us patience, give us faith to wait until that final day when all will be put right. And the kingdom will be delivered up unto the Father to the praise and the glory of your name and of his name forever and ever. And we plead with you, Lord, for those that are on the wrong side in this, in this very room. Deliver them, we pray. Persuade them that they are making a terrible choice. Deliver them, we plead, by the power of your spirit and the grace of the, of, of, of the gospel. 
We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.